0: HPR 1 <laughs>
1: We're back with The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It was two years ago this month that those who call themselves protectors of the mountain stood down at Camp KI because of the declaration of a pandemic and concern for the health of the protesters. The 30-meter telescope project, or TMT, is stalled for now, but the fight over the future of the Mona is still being waged in the halls of the state capitol. House Bill 2024 sets up a new management model for the mountain. But the astronomy community fears that, as written, it could jeopardize not just future projects or TMT, but also existing observatories. Kea Loha Pishkoda is the spokesperson for the Mauna Kea Hui. We talked to her from Hilo this morning. The Hui doesn't like the bill either.
2: The mm-hmm. problems that we fundamentally have with this bill is twofold. It's historical errors and also jurisdictional confusion is the easiest way to say it. Since about 2001, we submitted a big position paper, the Temple Report. And in that Temple Report, there were three major positions that we've held since 2001, and that is no further development should occur on Mauna Kea. The community should organize and create the management, community-based management. And also, the third is that they need to pay rent based upon state law for the use of seated lands and things like that, yeah, or so-called seated lands. And we still hold that position. Now, what's happening here in this bill is that, you know, in 1968, when they first got their lease, what really happened was in the first few years, they built multiple telescopes. They had asked to build one observatory, and they built many more. So there's now 22, and that's it. That's, you know, 22 telescopes or observatories. And that's excessive they had a limit of 13 and so we've been on about that all this time so that's why no further development okay the community base means that native hawaiians should play a a, not a minor role a significant role in managing mauna kea caring for it and all of that and so what's been our problem all these years is that blnr who has the legal responsibility to take care of mauna kea as a conservation district keeps advocating their authority to the university. The university isn't mandated by law to take care of Mauna Kea, So they never should be taking care of Mauna Kea. So should, we shouldn't even be having to go through this process to, quote unquote, eliminate them. I mean, they should p- play a major role. They have to take care of the observatory. And then the last and most important thing is that we continue to have issues with them not reporting back on what human race and toxic waste is being entered into the into the ground. I mean, what Mauna Kea, Puakalua, and Red Hill all have in common is that we have things that are toxic and human waste are entering our aquifer. Mauna Kea is the principal aquifer for, for, for Hawaii Island. Mean. So those are the issues that we have.
1: You know, I just heard a story yesterday on NPR talking about telescopes and those kinds of things and uh, the greenhouse gases that they generate, which I had never thought of oh. before. Yeah.
2: Me too. (laughs) That's an interesting point. I mean, we're just looking at, we're building on top of the aquifers. And so we need to know what's going on with those things. When we sued early on against NASA, NASA at least amended their septic systems from leach fields. Yeah. And so they put in a sump pump in so that at least the hazardous materials from the mirror washing was not going in the ground. But I don't know the, the nobody's reported back what the other observatories are doing, and they all have septic Many of them, especially the older ones, have septic uh, leach field systems, which is not good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's a large capacity uh, system. Uh, So the EPA Mm -hmm. might have something to say about that. I know the university has said that it is willing to reduce its footprint up there by 10,000 acres and uh, turn that back over to DLNR, but some have raised the question about DLNR's ability to manage the lands up there.
2: Yeah, well, DLNR has the mandate, though. They can't necessarily take that away. They have a fiduciary duty, including the observatories currently pay a dollar They aren't even collecting the proper rent from the observatories, for example. And they need to manage it. They they can't give that management. That would be like if I was a police officer, I I handed the gun to a, a regular citizen and said, shoot the criminal. You know, you can't you can't do that. They are legally required by statute. Take care of the conservation district of Mauna And they can't advocate that to another entity that doesn't have that legal responsibility in the same way. And so that's the jurisdictional confusion that continues to cause us trouble. And so management has always been an issue, but p- that issue is brought on because DLNR advocates their responsibility and gives it to another entity that's not legally responsible.
1: So the groups are not happy with uh, House Bill twenty twenty four either.
2: Yeah, no, we are object. We are opposing it. The Mauna Kea, who is is definitely opposed. We've been doing this, you know, for two decades at least, and so some of that history is not it, it is not in in the record here. So we're trying to put some of that back, and we cannot take Mauna Kea out of the body corpus of the public trust land, and that's what this does, also.
1: So I see how, you know, you could say, you know, this is heva, it's insult uh, yeah. upon injury, because not only are they paying a dollar a year on the leases for, for these trust lands, mm. but then, you know, what you see is, is too much desecration.
2: Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's really been our position for from the beginning. Um, it it, it Malnica is a sacred site, and it needs to be protected as such
1: We hear a lot too, about uh, this is being turned into a cultural issue versus a science issue. Um, what do you have to say about that?
2: It's never been that, and because it presumes that science this is the problem I have with that. It presumes science has no culture, and that's false because it does, and that culture has no science, and that's false because our traditional knowledge is science. It meets all the criteria for science. It's measurable and repeatable. And it's kind of a false narrative that the university, I mean, we've never been against the science per se. We've just been against the way science is aggressively seeking to continue to desecrate our mountain. When when we've been asking them for two decades that they need to stop and they need to fix the problem, the root problem, not Band-Aid
1: problem. So what would you like to see done with this bill? Well, I think it needs to
2: die. I, I think the community needs to have a bigger voice because it kind of came from this working group, which didn't have a lot of public vetting. And the community, the Lahui, needs to have a voice to talk about all the different ways in which Malnakea is used by traditional and cultural practitioners on Kea. There's all kinds of things. There's star people, there's plant people, there's we have a lot of concern about all the alien species that are taking over the mountain as well. And all of those things the community needs to be involved in, and they're not They're not involved. I mean, all we have is a few minutes to speak at the legislature. That's not okay. We need to really come together and think it out and take care of what our kuleana is as Native Hawaiians to our sacred mamna.
1: Do you think... Because we know how dear Hawaiians held held the skies. Do you think there is a place for astronomy up there at the mountain?
2: Our position has been that the the end of their lease is in 2033. We've never advocated to take them all down now, but if, if there are older ones, We do want them to be decommissioned if they're not going to be used. But again, decommissioning can be just as uh, destructive as putting them up. So we need to have input in that. We need to really um, have the community decide how that's done and and protect. Because remember, Momoké is sacred because it's also the burial ground of some of our highest and most revered ancestors.
1: Well, we appreciate you giving us some of your time to share your position so that we can better understand uh, the the mana of the mountain and and how you see this. Yeah, thank you. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to speak. That was Kealoha Pishkota, a spokesperson for the Mauna Kea Hui. The group submitted testimony against HB 2024, which sets up a new management model for Mauna Kea. The State Senate Committee on Higher Education takes up the measure this afternoon. The shutdown of the Navy's Red Hill fuel tanks and the related call for water conservation. There continues to be issues generating discussion across the state. Here's an email sent to us by Nobu Nakamoto earlier this month. Regarding Ernie Lau asking everyone to cut back on water use, since the Navy is responsible for this predic- predicament, the Navy should also be leading the way in cutting back on its water use. The Navy should lead the way by cutting back far more than that and make many of those cuts permanent with a broad program to replace old shower heads, faucets, and toilets throughout Navy facilities, including housing with lower flow and lower water use models. The Navy should also help local residents by buying low-flow shower heads that the Board of Water Supply could distribute to its customers and funding the BWS program that offers rebates for things like toilets that use less water. It is frustrating to see the Navy flushing millions of gallons of supposedly clean water down Halawa Stream, probably upsetting the ecosystem at the stream mouth by changing the salinity and then having everyone on the island cut back thanks to the Navy's inability to manage their fuel storage facility. And here's a voicemail that a listener left on our talkback line.
3: My name is Bill,
4: and I'm calling from Haleiwa. I got an alternative idea about the water fuel tanks. Why not totally clean them out and convert them into water storage tanks? Maybe we could coat the insides with some type of environmentally safe coating. And if they leak, they would just be leaking water. But
5: perhaps we could keep all those tanks as a reserve water supply. And it would be certainly much cheaper than destroying them all. And the
3: infrastructure is there to pump the water also. Bye.
1: And thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Call our Talkback line 792-8217. And speaking of Red Hill, our reality uh, check today features a story on how the contaminated water crisis could halt new construction on Oahu. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra joins us today. Good morning.
6: Hey,
1: Catherine, good to be here. Yeah, so uh, you uh, were uh, w- watching a hearing yesterday at the legislature. Tell us what happened.
6: Yeah, so the um, some officials with the Honolulu Board of Water Supply were giving a briefing to senators on where we are with this Red Hill um, contamination crisis and how it's impacting water, um, not just for military families, but now really for the civilian population. And the presentation was... In the words of one senator, alarming. Um, In in short, we could be in a situation where new construction is halted on the island, where um, public swimming pools are shut down, the water park will have to find another source of water. Um, We essentially need to cut way back on our water usage. Um, As folks may know, we are already under an advisory to reduce our usage ten percent, but that's really just the beginning. we lost a major water source in the Halava shaft when it was shut down late last year. Um, it provided 20% of the water from um, Lua to Hawaii Kai. So that's out, along with two other border water supply wells. So we're relying on um, some remaining wells, but you, you really can't pump those too hard, otherwise they'll get too salty to drink. So um, it's a supply and demand problem, and border water supply is hoping to to reduce the demand
1: yeah and that is uh distressing uh, because you know if this means we cut back now and then also during the drier summer months you know the rest of the year you know what impact will that have on new construction if there's not enough water for everybody
6: right i mean according to one construction lobbyist i spoke to the, the impact could be catastrophic if if they can't get permits for you know new water meters Um, This could have an impact on affordable housing. Just imagine all the things we need construction for, right? As well as for jobs, um, blue collar jobs in our economy. So um, it's definitely a frightening prospect. And just this morning, um, some of the senators, I think 30 of them, sent a letter to the Board of Water Supply asking them if this does come to pass, that we have a building moratorium to prioritize affordable housing development and try to make sure that those projects are preserved. Um, but it's a really really difficult situation that we're in and there's no quick fixes Um, the Board of Water Supply is actively pursuing the development of new wells but according to Ernie Lau the chief engineer that takes like five to seven years to stand up a new well Um, he said you know I wish it was only one year but he he said if I said that I'd be lying
1: yeah so that that is a a pickle that we're in uh, you know and you know, just last week, uh, I think all the the 19 zones that the Navy has been flushing, you know, they were given the all clear. So, you know, there, there's a lot at play here. We don't know then what this means, uh, you know, but as we heard, you know, from uh, one of our you know listeners, you know, they're thinking that the Navy should do their part and cut back on their water use as well. And we have not heard anything uh, from them yet.
6: Right. Yeah, I have not heard anything from the military about reducing their usage and, now that things are really starting to impact the civilian population and, um, you know, developers, I think there's there's going to this is just the beginning of, I think, a long conversation on who's going to be paying these costs. Um, you know, some people are saying they want the tourism industry to really cut back. because They're some of the biggest users and the military as well. Um, it, you know, a lot of people are saying it's unfair that normal residents should have to to bear the brunt of this burden um, when you know it certainly wasn't their fault for for the situation that we're all in so um, it's a difficult time and again we're just at the beginning of this really I mean even though as you mentioned the zones were all cleared the water for the military families is according to the health department safe Um, this is this is going to be a long process, and um, we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of this fuel contamination for a very long time. And I do want to mention that fuel is still there. 100 Over 100 million gallons of fuel is still sitting above our aquifer in the Red Hill tanks. Even though the, the Navy has said they plan to defuel, that could take, you know, well over a year.
1: Right. So there could be another leak at some point down the road. We just don't know. And then I know Ernie Lau had said that he was hoping to be able to meet uh, and talk with some of the large water users I uh, understand there's going to be another uh, meeting as well I think with some of the developers they have questions that's
6: right yeah, that's right yeah so the Board of water supply has been reaching out to some of their biggest water customers including um, people in the tourism industry um, and they'll also be meeting with developers I think sometime next week so they're doing what they can to to educate people on conservation um, methods and to figure out ways that they can cut back on uh on water usage to, to protect what we have and you know it's a good reminder to just use what you need um That's they're right. advising you know not only hotels to cut back usage but just take shorter showers check your home for
1: leaks right. um
6: water your lawn you know before the sun comes up or after it goes down right that so that just
1: kind of use what you need exactly um, but thank you so much christina Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at simulveet.org.
7: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting a site-specific installation by social practice artist Theaster Gates as part of Hawaii Triennial 2022. Admission
5: tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists.
1: Hi, I'm Angie
6: MacArthur. I'm Donna Markova. We're authors of Collaborative Intelligence. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about thinking with people who think
3: differently. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public
7: Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. matson.com.
1: The death toll continues to climb in Ukraine as Russian troops push in to seize key cities throughout the country. The images of war make us pause to consider those in need, not just abroad, but here at home. We sat down recently with Hawaii Red Cross Chief Executive Officer Diane Peters Nguyen to talk about the beginnings of the International Red Cross and the American Red Cross as this is Red Cross Month.
0: What's going on right now in Ukraine speaks to the very origins of the Red Cross and why it was started. Our uh, one of our founders Henri Dunant a Swiss businessman you know had watched the horrors of the war in in the, at the battle of Solfino and decided that you know there really have to be laws even in war even war has to have rules and so you know the humane um, treatment of prisoners, the non-targeting of civilians, all of these became that body of law that we know as international humanitarian law. And that really was part of the founding um, of the Red Cross movement. And uh, from that, you know, actually he won the first Nobel Prize. He was a co-recipient, Henri Dunant, for his work, uh, later became the Geneva Conventions as we know them today. But um, then sometime after that, Clara Barton, the founder of the American Red Cross, who herself, you know, uh, realized during, on the battlefields of the Civil War tending to the wounded that we, we need something like that here in the United States. And she, you know, 140 years ago founded the American Red Cross. And so we continue that effort. And as far as what's going on, things are so volatile on the ground, but we know that the Ukrainian Red Cross is very involved and and all of the other Red Cross societies And they are all under this rubric of the International Federation of the Red Cross, as is the American Red Cross. As you mentioned, March is Red Cross Month all across the nation. And here in Hawaii, we're marking that in many different ways. But it it has been a challenge. I've been on only a little more than a year and a half here, um, heading the Hawaii and the Pacific Islands region, but we've had to basically pivot with everything we do with our disaster responses and the emergencies and and things that we do here normally. We've had to really step up our game, and and even as far as recruiting volunteers, being very savvy and and taking different approaches. Because as you know, early into the pandemic, our volunteers didn't have vaccines, and it was primarily that older demographic that uh, we saw that you know just couldn't volunteer. So we really began a coordinated and concentrated effort to recruit um, different demographic younger volunteers, and uh, really um, looking at uh, training up and, and upskilling with um, in, in the local communities. Because I, you know I always say whether you're in Hana or Haula you can get cut off and really what what you have in the community the resources the volunteers and the human capital that you have is what you have and so it's really important to to focus on readiness. You know this past week Honolulu Halle's been lit up to mark uh, this this month. We're just coming off a weekend event uh, That's right. <laughs> with boats. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah so it's the first time ever that we've had this um, it was called Race for the Red and so we've had wonderful participation with both the Waikiki and the Honolulu Yacht Clubs uh, racing to the finish but they they did it in a very cute way because the uh, they subtracted um, uh, time off of the race if you they get, got more donations so that we really thought that was a fun way to to mark Red Cross month and then you've got a special day uh, set aside giving day that's right that's going that's on March 23rd we have our giving day and uh, encourage everybody w- whatever way they can to participate they can just go online and it's red org slash Hawaii and they can make their gift for Giving Day. Texting is very easy, too. They can just text 90999, then texting the word Red Cross to make a $10 donation. So really hope to get everybody involved. We actually have, I think it's $300,000 of matching funds secured for that Giving Day on March 23rd your donation would go farther if you pledge on that particular day. That's right. Absolutely.
1: And then of the volunteers that you've had, very loyal volunteers, you know,
0: uh, over the years, you'll be showcasing them as well. That's right. And, and um, before I Tell you about the uh, our heroes event. I just wanted to mention we also had Honolulu Hale lit up for the whole week and a um, proclamation with the mayor. We had a proclamation from the governor as well, and um, also the you know some of the neighbor islands and our territories. Even the governor of Guam, she presented us with a certificate. Um, I was there virtually, unfortunately not in person. But um, we also have been inviting our volunteers to take a selfie. We've had Aloha Tower lit up most of the month. Honolulu Holly was lit up in red. Aloha Tower, I think a little while back, it was yellow and blue for actually for Ukraine, but it's on and off most of the month for lit up in red. So we have invited our, our volunteers to go and take a selfie and, and post it on our on our uh, social media with with a hashtag help can't wait and uh, we want to get as much participation as we can on that. and and uh, the recognition day when you actually um, you know say Mahalo that's to, right to a
1: lot of the folks that step up you know uh, across the Pacific and and the big thing right now
0: is actually down in Tonga, right? the 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 terrible uh, yes uh, uh, eruption triple disaster Mm -hmm. yes back in January so yeah just last month we uh, teamed up with um, the iHeart family of radio stations as well as uh, one of the federal credit unions here and we did a fundraiser it was with Hawaiian financial federal credit union and iHeart to Kokua for Tonga and ended up raising very close to $35,000 just in a very short amount of time. But I think it speaks to, you know, how we in Hawaii feel for all of our cousins in the Pacific. And, and, you know, the um, Tonga is very close to part of the areas that come under our Pacific Island region, of course, uh, just 500 miles away from American Samoa. So, you know, we we want to be there for them and, and know that they would be there for us. And so, what's it been like for you for the you know the last year and a half that you've been here at the at Red Cross? Is it w- what you thought, <laughs> Catherine? It's it's been a thrill. I, I haven't looked back. It's been um, you know one of the biggest challenges that I've ever stepped into, and yet we just have um, a wonderful team, a very seasoned and. Fantastic team, um, great support from our um, both our divisional and uh, national levels, and I, I do feel very supported. And then the local community. I mean, as you know, the American Red Cross is—it's been for several years running America's. Best loved charity and most trusted, and I think that the brand itself, when you you know you wear the vest or you you wear the the badge, people react in a certain way. And I think having that trusted and respected of a brand to represent, it's a responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility. It's been a wonderful journey so far. Recently, we've we've had oh gosh a number of house fires. You
1: folks have been out helping the families uh, that have lost everything. You know we're we're looking down for a very dry year, and yes. and we hope that there aren't going to be really bad brush fires. But you just really don't know with with climate change. It's just, it's it's very unsettling.
0: But a natural disaster could strike, and and you folks are there. That's right. It's not you know a question of if it's when. As you said, uh, climate change of course is um, exacerbating everything. So we had in 2020 about 17. Um, natural disasters in in the country that cost over a billion dollars, a billion dollars of damage, and then in in twenty twenty one it actually exceeded that. It was tw- twenty of them that costed over a billion dollars. So, it's um, it's a very grave concern because the both the frequency of these natural disasters as well as the impact of them and severity have been have increased with with global warming so it, it is of concern and uh, here in hawaii you know we've had we were very lucky uh, knock on wood this past year but we certainly had a very close call with the run-up to douglas when i first started it was the closest hurricane ever to approach this island of oahu and you know so just a little bit of uh, you know wiggle room there but it m- would have been different and we know that really home fires, as you mentioned, is every three to four days here, and there have been quite a few recently. It, it is it's looking to be a dry, a very dry um, ending of our spring and going into summer. So you know we will in uh, May kick off our first time first time back, uh, sound the alarm program where we go physically into homes and install the smoke detectors.
1: Okay, so we'll, we'll be seeing more of that as... Uh things start to normalize
0: in the community and, and, and you get back to work. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're looking forward to that. We work with a lot of our corporate partners and volunteers in the community. And in addition to installing those um, smoke alarms, we if people already have them, we can help them test them. If they need new batteries, we can help with that. Um, if you know they, they haven't thought about how they're going to get out of their home or condo in two minutes, we're going to be talking about that to help them with just preparedness, And and making sure from each room you have two exits and, and you can get out in two minutes or less. You have a rendezvous point and you know where to meet your family, that someone's got tutu, someone's got the dog, and just, you know, reviewing all those basic things. I just want to say because March, in addition to being Red Cross Month, is actually, as you know, National Women's History Month, and here in Hawaii, you know, I always want to remember the legacy of our last Queen Liliuokalani. I have a personal, very um, special high regard for her with in my other capacity on uh, Hui Hanai. But, you know, I just want to recall the fact that she was actually one of the founders of the Red Cross here in Hawaii in 1917, just shortly before she passed away. She held a membership drive that had a significant number of the whole island participating and, you know, Royal Hawaiian Band coming out. And I mean, it was a really big deal. And we know that without her help in, in getting the Red Cross started here, it it might never have happened. So we're just so grateful we have the flag that Lili'u personally sewed with her helpers in our headquarters at Diamond Head. And, you know, again, she, she's a figure in history that I think looking at the struggles that she had and she faced in her lifetime is very relevant for right now.
1: That was Diane peters when the Red Cross Regional Chief Executive Officer for the Pacific Islands region, which includes the state of Hawaii, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and American Samoa. Halikula means schoolhouse. The campus sat on an Oahu military base for decades until its deteriorating state and complaints from Army families got the attention of lawmakers who appropriated money to fix the worst schools on military installations. The late Senator Dan Inouye is credited with helping with that effort. And after his passing, the schofield Base school would honor him by taking his name. Jenna Wasse was principal at the time. She shared the story about the name change and wrote the, this letter to the school board to begin the process way back in 2016.
7: I wrote, Hale Kula Elementary School first opened in 1959, the same year that Hawaii became the 50th state. When Hawaii achieved statehood, Daniel Ke'inoe was elected as its first member of the United States House of Representatives. In 1962, he was elected to the United States Senate, where he served until his death in 20. At that time, he was the president pro tempore of the Senate.
1: And Iwasi ended that letter to the school board with, we can think of no greater privilege than to rename our school after this American hero. Here's Iwasi.
7: You know, he was an advocate for the military, you know, being a military veteran himself and getting injured during the war so he was very much an advocate for the military families he started organizations like joint ventures education forum which is um uh, a group of uh, people from the business community as well as the education committee community and the military and just working together to help our military families and their students so it was a really vital organization in in helping us with funding for things like technology and for books and for other issues that really impacted our military families. Because, you know, it's really a different lifestyle from a local family. You know, these families move around every few years and our kids really needed to transition. You know, we needed to have that transition program so that they would feel comfortable and be a part of our school community which I think we tried very hard to do throughout our tenure as a military impacted school principal. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and talk about the survey of schools uh, on bases mm-hmm. that took place back mm-hmm. in 2011 because that was kind of an eye opener for a lot of people.
7: Yeah well you know um, we didn't know what would happen but I mean you know our school was 1959 it was we had far outgrown our facilities we had over a thousand students so we are all in um, many of our students were working out of you know portable classrooms and our counselors were sharing one portable and it was really a crowded situation so in 2011 shortly after the president got elected president obama the military families in i believe it was in virginia had a meeting and they said you know our our school needs to be upgraded we are so um there's so many repairs that need to be done so they did a survey of 157 schools located on military bases in the united states and and they were looking at condition as well as capacity and our school came out number nine um out of all of the the schools so we were able to apply for grant to upgrade our facilities. And so we are very fortunate. We're the first school in Hawaii to do that. And um, we got a brand new uh, office building, administrative building, and a 10 classroom building, uh, library and media center, as well as a student support center. And then our final one was a, a covered play court. And so we, for three years, our school, um, lived through construction while trying to teach and um, but the comp- it was such a wonderful project and if you look at the school today it is much more modern than it was prior and I think it's a facility that will help students now and in the future. I mean it's really a 21st century kind of a school building. So the military I mean the uh, Department of Defense the federal government actually put in 80%, so 26.6 million, and the state of Hawaii had to put in 20%. That was the agreement. So, um, 32.2 million dollar project, and uh, it was, I mean, it it was a fabulous opportunity for our school and for our military families. So, yes, very very pleased. And since then, there are other schools that have, like Solomon, has a brand new school as a result. And I think they're working on other schools that are located on base here in Hawaii too. The
1: the fact that uh, you had a name change, I don't know, was that difficult for the school? It wasn't as
7: difficult. Now, Halikula started in 1959, and it, it stands for schoolhouse, right? And um, it, I think, the people who were most concerned about the change were the those who had come to our school. Earlier in their career, and and they were kind of sad to see that it would be changed. But I think everyone in our school community agreed that it would be a good change. That Senator Inouye had done a lot for our community, our school, you know, our our state, as well as our uh, our. Military community, so we have the support of everyone in order to make that change. And if you go to the school in their office now, the Daniel K. Noy Institute actually donated a showcase display case, uh, and we have many of his uh, memorabilia in there. It's really pretty neat—his Medal of Honor and things, and pictures—and and it's a really good reminder for anyone who goes to the school that. Hey, you're named after this this great American hero. So were
1: you the first ones to have the name of the school changed? I don't know if we were the first. Probably not, but I'm not sure what the process was for
7: other schools. For us it wasn't it was kind of a slam dunk. I think the Board of Ed voted unanimously when we made the request at one of their meetings. So
1: I don't know. Anything else you want to share with us? You know, because as you as you see, I think the the big uh, brouhaha is over McKinley, you know, and I know, you know, that's a that's a school, it, uh, I believe where Dan and Noy went. Yes, that's a really tough
7: one. I mean, I really I I hope that we don't overreact. I hope that there is, you know, I, I don't know how the school community feels about it, but I think you really need to um, tread carefully and make sure that all voices are heard before you can really change the name of a school to to reflect the times all I can say is I I'm not I'm neutral in it um, in that particular change but I know there is a, a a lot of history I know my in-laws both went to McKinley and graduated from there so it's a little. It's a little difficult.
1: Yeah, there are people that are passionate about it. Yeah. They're passionate Mm -hmm. about it on both sides. And that's a little different because it's a high school and Mm -hmm. the alma mater, you know, says McKinley high and so Yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit
0: trickier. Yeah.
7: Um, Well, we had our school song, our Kumu changed the words to reflect the change of the name And, and I think it it worked out very well for us. But I know that those who came who kids attended Hale Kula, they still sing it as Hale Kula no
1: That was Jen Iwase, retired principal of Hale Kula School, now known as Daniel K. Inouye Elementary. And we do want to leave you with the students uh, singing the school song, Hale Kula no but we should mention that Senator Dan Inouye's history is not without controversy. In the recent Me Too movement, allegations of sexual harassment against the senator resurfaced. That, too, is part of the public record, part of the history.
7: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. Close the airspace, stop the bombing.
3: A no-fly zone would mean the beginning of World War III.
7: I'm sick and tired of being worried about what Putin's gonna do.
1: We're the most powerful nation on the planet
0: big rhetoric around three simple words,
1: but what would a no-fly zone really mean in the skies over Ukraine? I'm Meghna Chakrabarti. That's on the next On Point.
5: Beginning this afternoon at two following the world.
1: The Keala-Pupukea bike path, or the Sunset Beach bike path as it's more commonly known, is a three-mile stretch of pavement that runs parallel to Kamehameha Highway up on O'ahu's North Shore. The nearly 30-year-old path is a popular thoroughfare for everyone from bike riders to those just taking a stroll. It's also become more dangerous for users in recent years because of the spotty maintenance. The Conversations Russell Sobiano spoke with Rex and Dubiel, the Vice President of the North Shore Outdoor Circle, to find out what the community is doing about it.
5: What's the current state of the bike path?
1: At the moment, because it's 30
4: years old and had a lot of sun, sand, and damage, and because of the roots are pushing up the surface of the bike path, it's in really poor condition. There are cracks and bumps and holes, and it points along the bike path. The asphalt is pulled away from the curbing. So at present, it is very dangerous. Initially, when it was put in, I could rollerblade on it, but that's not the case anymore. It's actually become a little dangerous to walk on because there are bumps. And uneven spots and if you're not really paying attention my husband tripped and skinned his knees a couple of years ago so I've been you know working on this for yeah. quite a while because it's just becoming more and more dangerous with each passing month really can
5: you share with our audience who uses the bike path
4: the use of the bike path is primarily the people in the neighborhood and especially the children that bike path was put in at the request of some parents in the neighborhood about 30 years ago, and it took a few years to get it to be approved by the city. So it was put in uh, as a primarily as a safe thoroughfare for the children to go back and forth to Sunset Beach Elementary School when it got established.
5: It's a three-mile stretch from Sharks Cove to Velzyland. Did the city start out managing it?
4: Well, yes, the city built it. And they had a condition, though. They didn't have the money to do the landscaping. So that's when the North Shore Outdoor Circle stepped in and that's why I'm so involved because what we did is we collaborated with neighbors along the bike path and built gardens and put in shrubs and we took care of it. We were supposed to take care of it for about five years. That was the agreement with the city. But it was about 13 years that the North Shore Outdoor Circle maintained it, took care of it, worked with the city. The city was great. We had some really good people out of Kayaka in Eva, and we'd have cleanups and plantings and weedings quarterly, maybe sometimes every six months, and I coordinated those. And we had military soldiers come out. Our bike path is not just for the neighborhood. Because of where we are and all the surf spots along the stretch out here, of the three beach roads, bike path parallels, we have thousands and thousands of visitors every year. And we have island-wide surfers that come and go surfing or people that come and go fishing, people that come and go snorkeling, or just people that offload their bikes at Shark's Cove and then pedal along the beach roads all the way to Ted's Bakery and back. So it's a high-use bike path, and it's seniors and people with walkers and strollers and dog walkers. So that bike path is a safe way to get back and forth from almost Waimea Bay to Ted's Bakery. A few weeks ago, we had the Pipeline Masters, and you couldn't ride your bike on the bike path. You just had to walk your bike because there were so many people going back and forth from Ehukai, Because there is no real parking out here, they would park wherever they possibly could, and it could be a mile away from Pipeline. So yes, it's used.
5: Now, I know your organization and the Hawaii Bicycling League are asking folks to sign a petition regarding the path. What does the petition seek to do?
4: The petition seeks to let Mayor Blangiardi understand how many people use the bike path and feel it's critical to repair it to actually, our effort is to reconstruct it because it needs to be brought up to code. I walked the bike path two years ago with the city director of roads maintenance, Tyler Sugihara, and he made a very detailed report and presented to the city, and that report really laid out exactly what needs to be done. And it's in dire condition at this moment. There are too many, there's just too many bumps, too many cracks, too many holes. It's so uneven. So you have to be really careful when you ride the bike path now. And that's what our hope is. That petition will show the mayor that this is really, really an important asset to our neighborhood. It's a critical thoroughfare for us who live in the community, the children, and then all the visitors that we host out here. I turned in the hard copy to the mayor when I met with him last week for about an hour.
5: What came out of that meeting?
4: I loved that meeting. The mayor was very personable. He understood, and he was very, very supportive, and he wants to make it work. And I believe what's going to happen is we're going to have to get some federal funding that's now being administered by the state with safe roads to school and transportation alternatives. There is money for infrastructure, and hopefully some of the money coming from the federal government through President Biden's efforts, we will be able to reconstruct the bike path and make it safe for everyone. You
1: know, In addition to that push to reconstruct the Sunset uh, Beach bike path, Honolulu City Council member Heidi Sunyoshi spearheaded a cleanup last week that saw 25 volunteers help remove overgrowth from the path. She talked with HPR's Russell Subiano about what more the city council is doing to address the issue.
5: The bike path has been around for nearly 30 years, and some local groups believe that there's been a a lack of care or maintenance on the path in the last few years or so, and some of them are calling for the reconstruction of the path. What are your thoughts on what can be done right now to keep the path safe?
3: For now, I'm very grateful that on behalf of Rex as you mentioned, the Vice President of North Shore Outdoor Circle and other community groups, we've been going out there, the city, meeting with the community to do a comprehensive report and status of the bike path. So that was completed. So we do know the level of, of maintenance and pretty much reconstruction at this point that's going to be needed to bring it up to a safe point. So we're, that's a good starting point for us to go to and we'll, move, we'll be moving forward to discuss options for funding and making the project viable for the future.
5: Can you talk a little bit more about the study? Can you talk about how long the study lasted and what were some of the findings?
3: Sure. So after meetings with the community, the city went out and did a comprehensive review, went on for a couple months. And just to identify the, the most serious concerns about the bike path, including the areas where there's cracking, lifting, and other things that makes the bike path unsafe, And so that just leaves us with the ability to see where the areas of concern are in the case of continuing with spot maintenance, if you will, and addressing the most dangerous areas first as we move forward into total reconstruction. So it was a good way for us to identify where the areas of focus needs to be before moving into complete reconstruction.
5: Rex was saying that the primary users of the bike path are, are the kids that go back and forth along that stretch of road from school to, to home. But I imagine that with tourism returning to the islands and the price of gas making a, a big jump recently, it's, it's likely the path will continue to be a popular route along the North Shore for a lot more than just the kids. Is reconstruction or even an extension of the path something City Council could be looking into in the future?
3: Definitely looking into the reconstruction, there has been discussions of extension Past There is the path toward an extension with Waimea coming very close with the turn and everything. Not sure how an extension would work, but definitely maintaining the a little over three miles that currently stand. as It is a very good passageway for not just the school children, but the school children definitely are very important in their usage of it. But also with with everyone that comes to the North Shore, like you said, tourists and residents alike. And so I do believe that the reconstruction is necessary to really consider seriously. And I do believe that even in discussions with administration, there's the understanding of how important that resource is to the North Shore community. So I'm fairly hopeful that we'll be able to get some attention to it and hopefully reconstruction in the near future because of its proximity to to the ocean and everything. The, The current materials that was used, which is asphalt, isn't necessarily the best material so we would need to just to, to make sure that when we move forward we look at what we need to do to make sure that we not just reconstruct it but reconstruct it in a way where it's is able to be maintained properly for a long period of time because, as we know, maintenance tends to be an issue with city infrastructure, so we just want to make sure that we do it in the right way.
5: You guys are at the very early outset of contemplating reconstruction and what that would take. Is there an optimistic and a realistic time frame for for when it could potentially take place?
3: So unfortunately, with any project that deals with construction, and in this case, reconstruction, there's quite a process that goes into it when it goes to the city, which goes through the design phase and then moves into the construction phase. So that at least takes a couple of years. But the faster way that projects tend to move is if we do it as a public-private partnership, and we find a way to partner with a private entity who can help with some of those early phases of what needs to happen, and then the city can come alongside and partner. So one of the things I'm hopeful for is trying to possibly utilize the private-public partnership model and be able to move on the reconstruction quicker. So we'll definitely be looking forward to work with the community and other stakeholders to see how we might be able to do that.
1: And that was Honolulu City uh, Council Member Heidi Suniyoshi and North Shore Outdoor Circles, Rex and Dubiel. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the reconstruction of the Sunset Beach bike path, We'll have a link to the petition for the Reconstruction on the conversation page of our website, HawaiiPublicRadio.org. And that's it for us for now. Tomorrow, we explore the humanitarian laws of war in a class that just wrapped up at the University of Hawaii Law School. Share your comments or questions about what you heard today by calling our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.